John 19. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh, we've been on a two-month journey um, over the, looking at Jesus, looking at the Gospel of John and considering that. And uh, in, in the Gospel of John, as I've talked about, John strategically places seven of Jesus' miracles as signs to guide us. I mean, Matthew, Mark and Luke are just absolutely packed full of miracles. They're overflowing. But John, on the other hand, reduces his down to just seven. And he never calls them miracles, he calls them signs. Because it's not the thing... John doesn't want us to concentrate on the miracle. John wants us to focus on what that points to. You see, the seven signs are intended for us to point to us the right way to believe in Jesus Christ, that believing in him we might have eternal life. So in the seven name, signs, we've seen those. We've seen Jesus turning water into wine, multiplying loaves and fishes, walking on the water, healing the blind, the lame, the dying, and then finally raising the dead. Seven signs to inform our faith. And all of these signs take place in the first half of John's gospel. And then they dry up, they just cease. John gives us no more signs. And the second half of John's gospel is narrative and teaching, and it's the controversies that Jesus gets involved in in Jerusalem. But there are no more signs because John wants you to believe that we've, re- that we've reached the seventh sign. And with the seventh sign at the end of signs, he wants us to think that because you have seven, the divine number, we've, we've got there. But the thing with John, as you, you study or read his gospel, is he's really an artist, and he's setting us up for a surprise. Because just when the reader thinks that there are no more signs in the, in the gospel of John, suddenly out of nowhere, there comes an eighth sign. A surprise for another sign. Yes, it's, an, it's a number eight. And eight is always in scripture means new beginnings. A sign is all about the new beginnings. The new beginning is one of John's dominant themes in the gospel. You see, as I said in the past, his gospel is so sophisticated. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if John spent years writing this gospel. And I like to think about it. Sue and I, as you know, we were on a sabbatical a couple of years ago, and we went to where John's buried, and it's right up on a hill and overlooks down out towards where Ephesus is. And I just can imagine John just sitting under these trees, thinking and writing and working through as he wrote his, his gospel and he put it together for us. And on the themes, and so the, th- the theme of the new, is the new beginnings. In fact, John is n- nothing less. Well, we're jumping around a bit there. In fact, the theme of the new beginnings, in fact, John is doing nothing less than giving us a new genesis. And that's what I want to call a sermon this morning, the new genesis. You see, John is giving us a new genesis, a second genesis. Now, in our Bibles, we have lots of books of the Bible where we have 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, and others. And John was very intentional that he would connect this gospel as a sort of a second genesis to the book of beginnings. Genesis, of course, the very first book of the Bible is the book of beginnings. And it begins with the words, in the beginning. And of course, when we turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, what do we have? In the beginning. And John expects us to to catch what he's doing there. 
But you know, it's even more involved than that. Most of us would have been aware of that. But you know, Genesis 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the, waters of the, fa- uh, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now listen to the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The second Genesis. The first chapter of Genesis is very clear. And at the conclusion of that first chapter, we find creation of man on the sixth day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's Friday. And on Friday, it speaks of the God creating man. And we're told that God created man and he beheld man. Or we could say it this way, behold the man. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we find things like the the seventh day, the day of rest, uh, where God himself rested. We see the garden and the gardener. And we find God breathing upon man. And then, of course, in chapter 3 of Genesis, everything begins to go wrong. And then now the Bible has a big story to tell. The story of the fall of man, but the redemption of man. The story is always moving relentlessly in one direction. It's moving toward the new beginning, the new Genesis, the new Adam, the new humanity, the new creation, the new garden. And so, see, this is how John tells us the gospel story, through those things. So here we have the resurrection of Jesus. I want to back up a little bit to John chapter 19. It's Friday. It's Good Friday. It's the sixth day of the week. Pilate brings forth Jesus in a purple robe, wearing a crown of thorns. And what does Pilate say? Behold the man. Behold the man. Do you get it? Behold the man. On the sixth day of creation, God spoke and said, Behold the man. Here now on the sixth day, we have Pilate saying, Behold the man, the new representative of the human race. This man, Christ Jesus, who's been condemned and is, cruci- and is about to be crucified. So after the six days of labor in which God created the heavens and the earth, we're told in Genesis, Genesis 2 verse 1, that God's work was finished, creating the heavens and the earth, and, and that he rested. And here, after, on the sixth day, as Pilate speaks of Jesus, He's condemned and crucified. And after six hours of suffering on the cross, he lifts his voice. And what does he say? It is finished. And I don't want to give anything away, but what's finished? The the new heaven and the new earth, the new Genesis. It's finished and he breathes his last breath and he dies. And with the evening of that Friday, it now crosses over into the seventh day, the Sabbath, the rest day. So what is Genesis, what is, in Genesis, what does God do on the seventh day? He rests. And in the Gospel of John, at the end of chapter 19, what does God and Christ do? On the seventh day, on the Saturday, he rests in a tomb. A tomb set in a garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Arimathea. And we see these themes because both are present in Genesis and they're present in John. Because John is the new Genesis. And early in the, in the early in the morning, the next morning, on the first day of the week, 
but it's more than the first day of the week. Because again, John's a master of understatement. And he repeatedly, throughout the story as we read it, keeps talking about the first day of the week. But it's not just the first day of the week. It's far more than that. It's the first day of everything being new. It's not just a new week. It's a new beginning. It's a new age. It's a new genesis. And you could say it's the eighth day, the number of new beginnings. And in that time, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. Very early in the morning. It's still dark. Things are confusing. She's not quite sure what's happening. There's chaos and confusion all around her. I mean, her, her beloved friend Jesus is dead. So she comes to the tomb. And she discovers the tomb, the, the stone's been rolled away. And she doesn't know what to make of that, that the, 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 the stone's been rolled away. And, and there's an empty tomb when she goes in. And so she runs and tells Peter... She runs to tell the Apostle Peter that the tomb is empty. In other words, Mary is the Apostle to the Apostles. Right there, do you see it? That's, that's, a, that's a strong argument that women can preach. Some churches, they, people say still that people can't preach. But there's a woman. Do you realize that Mary was the first person to ever preach the good news that Jesus rose? She started the whole preaching deal. Ever before Peter preached or anyone else, it was a woman. He's being preached to by Mary Magdalene, announcing to him that the tomb is empty. And Peter's, Peter's reaction is to run. So he begins to run back to the tomb. Mary's running back to the tomb. And Peter thinks, John thinks, hey, I might as well join in. And so he starts running too. And they're all running to his tomb. Because this is a day where you don't sit still. This is a day for movement and action. And everybody's running. Mary's running. Peter's running. John's running. And they race back to the garden. And John gets there first. We know that because John tells us. <laughs> I like that about John. He writes the gospel when he's 90. And saint that he was, he still wanted everybody to know that, dang it, he's faster than Peter. <laughs> <laughs> but they get there anyhow and they make this kind of investigation. Yes, the tomb's empty, but the clothes remain. I mean, who's going to steal a body, undress it and steal a body? Why would you do that? Because the clothes are still there. They're folded, they're wrapped on the ground. They can't make sense of it. At this point, John's beginning to believe. He's beginning to think things, there's something going on here. Peter doesn't know what to believe. And they wander off lost in their thoughts. And Mary remains alone in the garden at the empty tomb. And she's re- weeping. And through her tears, she peers into the empty tomb. But this time, it's not empty. She sees two men in the tomb. One at the head of where Jesus was and one at his feet. That kind of reminds you, you know, of the, or reminds me anyhow, of the Ark of the Covenant. Because you see, at the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, there were two angels with wings. And through her tears, she sees angels seated upon the new mercy seat. And they turn to her and they say, why are you crying, woman? Who are you seeking? She says, I'm looking for Jesus, but the body is gone. The body is gone. And she's, she's confused. And then in that moment, she turns. She turns from peering into the temple. Uh, into the tomb, and she turns around, and there is the gardener. She sees the gardener, 
the one who's charged with tending the garden, the one responsible for ensuring the health of the garden, watering plants, cultivating them, planting them, pruning the trees, making sure it's a garden. She sees this man that she supposes is a gardener, and she says, Sir, if you've taken away his body, please tell me where it is so I can go to the body. And the gardener speaks her name. All he says is Mary. She goes, Rabboni, teacher. It's not the gardener. It's Jesus Christ risen from from the dead, alive again. And she begins to weep and cling to him. And he says, Mary, Mary, you don't need to clutch me. Cling to me. I've not yet ascended to to my father. You see, in, in, in supposing that Jesus was the gardener, Mary made a mistake. Or did she? Because you see, on one level she was mistaken, but on a deeper, more profound level, Mary got it just right. Because you see, Jesus is the gardener of the new creation. Jesus is the gardener who recovers the abandoned vocation of Adam to tend the garden, to once again make the, the garden of God beautiful. Do you realize that was man's original vocation? God planted man in the garden. He put man in the garden. He formed him from the dust of the earth, breathed into him the breath of life, the ruach, the wind, the spirit, the breath of God. Man became a living soul, and he's given a vocation, and his vocation was in that garden. You see, it's my conviction that that garden was meant to expand. That garden of Eden was meant to expand and to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. The whole world was to be the garden of God. But things went wrong when Adam lost his vocation and was driven out of the garden. And Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel and goes and builds cities. The first city he builds. And so mankind is no longer planting gardens and tending gardens. We're now building cities and empires and waging war and fighting and lusting and trying to get control. See, it's a far cry from what God had us, what we were called to do. We were to turn the world into the garden of God. And so what do we find here on this first day of the new Genesis? We find the gardener back in the garden, back at it, back at the original vocation. And you know, by the way, if we go to the very end of the Bible, what do we find? We find the city that Abraham was looking for. Cain started cities, but they all went bad, every one of them. But Abraham, we're told, was looking for a city made by the hands of God that God would build. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that city. But it's not a city of concrete and asphalt and steel. It's a garden city. It's a city where human civilization flourishes. And yet it's also a garden because there are trees there bearing fruit. There's a river that flows from the throne of God and it's green and it's flourishing. It's a symbol of the world itself becoming the garden of God, which was the dream of God all along. I love what C.K. Chesterton says, one of my favourite quotes. On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realised a new wonder, but even they hardly realised the world had died in the night. They were looking at was what was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth, 
and in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Jesus Christ was the firstborn of humanity. You know, our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters speak of recapitulation, which means reheading. You see, the original race had its original head in Adam, but Paul says in Adam all die. But now in Christ, we have a new head, and the new head of the human race is the second Adam, who gives us a new genesis, Jesus Christ, because... Paul says, for an Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. See, God has given us an entirely new way of being human, a second genesis, a new genesis. In Jesus Christ, it is what humanity finds is a new beginning and a new genesis. In Jesus Christ, we recover our original vocation to make the world into the garden of God. Ezekiel had a vision all about this. Remember Ezekiel, after the destruction of the temple, he has a a vision of a temple to come. And he sees this temple and and it begins with a trickle of water that flows out of the threshold, out of the threshold of the the, the, uh, temple. And it begins to flow and it gets deeper and it gets wider. It goes to the knees and it goes to the waist and it becomes deep enough to swim in it. And everywhere it goes, there is life. And it goes to the barren wastelands. And the wastelands begin to live. And in this dream that Ezekiel has, finally the river from the temple makes it all the way to the Dead Sea where nothing lives. And suddenly the Dead Sea is healed and everything is living. So what is the temple? The temple is us. We are the living stones and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the life of Christ himself. We are to transform everywhere we go. We are to take the barren wastelands of humanity and bring the flourishing gardens of God. Dead seas are to be healed, to have life once again. This is what it means because Jesus is the gardener. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw that it was the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's the first day of the week. Everything's been made new. The disciples are hiding in fear in a locked room. You see, fear is compelling them to hide. And they're in this little locked room. You see, we can live our lives in, in, in a room of fear. The fear we've inherited from Adam and Eve, who after transgressions did what? Hid, hid from God. In fact, the first words recorded from the lips of a human being in the Bible, we find God, Adam and Eve speaking to God, and we hear them say they were afraid. They tell God they were afraid of him, and so they hid. So the very first human experience in language is to do with our sense of fear and compels us to hide. And so where do we find the disciples? Hiding. But God comes to them. God and Christ comes to them. And he stands in the midst of them. And he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Because peace is the first word 
of the new world. Fear was the first word of the old world after sin. Peace is the word of the new world created by Christ. The kingdom of Christ is a peaceable kingdom. And he says, he says, peace to you. Then he repeats it. He says, peace. And then he says, the Father sent me, and so I am sending you. The Father had sent the Son who came for the lost children of Israel, the sheep of Israel, and he announced and he enacted the kingdom of God in his sermons, in his parables, in his preaching, in his healing, in his setting people free from demonic power, and especially how he practiced the table. And he invited everyone, Pharisees, Sadducees, sinners, tax collectors, outcasts, he invited everyone to come to his table. And he announced and he enacted the kingdom. And Jesus says to his disciples, my father sent me and I'm sending you. I was sent to Israel, you are being sent to the whole world. You are to go to the whole world and you are to announce and enact this kingdom like I have taught you. And then he breathed on them. He breathed on them the Ruach, which is a Hebrew word for spirit, breath, or wind. One, one word meaning all those things. It's actually interesting. It's the same in Greek, pneuma, and he, one, and meaning spirit, breath, wind. The same word. And he breathed on them, and he says, receive the breath of God. Receive the wind of God. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the spirit that's not of this age. That's not the, that's not the spirit of this world. That's not the spirit of fear. It's not the spirit of hate, the spirit of blame. Receive a spirit that's different to all those things. Receive the spirit that is holy. And you know what? We have this Holy Spirit. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Because you become a forgiving person. You become a forgiving person. If you forgive your sins... Going backwards. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain them all, then they are retained. But why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? You know what? If forgiveness, if forgiveness is withheld, it's because we, forget, we withhold it. God is already forgiven. When Jesus said upon the cross, Father, forgive them. And the Father said, yes, son, we will forgive them. They were all sins were forgiven. So receive the Holy Spirit. Go forth and help flood the world with forgiveness and drown, drown sin in the sea of God's eternal love. That's what we're supposed to do. The baptized are the agents of the new creation. We are gardeners turning garbage dumps into gardens. That's our calling. See, Golgotha, you know Golgotha was a rubbish dump? It had been a quarry, but then it became an abandoned quarry. It was turned into a garbage dump in the time of Jesus. And part of the humiliation of crucifixion that, that was that they'd never buried the bodies. And that's why the crucifixion was so much easier. That's why they had it on Golgotha, because the crucifixion detail, the Roman detail, army just had to pull the bodies off and throw them into the rubbish dump where the birds and the animals would peck at them. And, uh, but it was exceptional for Jesus. That's why it was so, he was put in a grave because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both from the Sanhedrin, had to go and get special permission from the governor to get, let them give Jesus a proper burial. 
Because although Jesus was buried and crucified in a garbage dump, he was resurrected in a garden. And you should understand that that is our mission. That is our mission. We had to go into the garbage dumps of sin and turn, the, turn them into gardens of redemption and reconciliation. We had to turn garbage dumps into gardens. That's our commission. We are gardeners joining Jesus in what he's doing. He's a gardener once again, and he says, come on, we've got some work to do. We've got some garbage dumps here. Let's turn them into gardens. And the, the church changes the world by practicing resurrection. You know, the world, the old system, the one inherited by Cain from that point on, uses death as a utility, as a tool, as a weapon. The old world, the world that's passing by, uses death and power to control. But the world, the new world, that is inaugurated on the first Sunday is a beautiful alternative to what the world offers. We don't use control and death as weapons. We use life as a gardening tool. And we turn garbage dumps into the gardens. And the church changes the world, not by taking the battlefields, but by calling everyone to join Christ at his table. Because the table is a place where every barrier is broken, where forgiveness is found in the form of bread and wine. That's, that, that's what's here this morning, is forgiveness. You, you, you call this bread and wine, but it's actually forgiveness. It's forgiveness in the form of bread and wine. And Jesus invites every one of us to come. Every one of us to come. And that's going to be my invitation to you in a minute or two. We're going to take communion together this morning. And whether you're coming here all the time or whether you're just visiting this morning, you may feel like a pretty good guy or you may feel like the scum of the earth. You may think, feel like I'm getting free, I'm seeing breakthrough, or you might feel like I'm bound. It doesn't matter however you feel this morning, you're invited. Because what Jesus does is he offers everyone a new genesis, a new beginning, a new birth, a second chance. And as we come to this table today, you can experience afresh, you can experience afresh the forgiveness of Jesus. See, we can come with sin, we can come with failure, we can come with doubts, we can come with uncertainty. It doesn't matter. You don't have to reach a standard. We come and we encounter Christ. And when we encounter Christ, he gives us a new, crea- new genesis. We start a new creation. And so this morning, we're going to take the communion as part of celebrating this new genesis that Jesus started for us. It's available to each one of us. So can I have our service serve?